let me invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. To the Gospel of John. This morning we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In the next several occasions on which we do this, I want us to consider a passage of Scripture uh, that has meant a great deal to God's people over the centuries. And that is John chapter 13. So let me ask you to turn there to John chapter 13. Uh, here we have Jesus setting an example for his disciples. And what is the example that he set? It's the example of service. It's the example of hum humbling oneself to serve others. And so this morning I want us to read just the first five verses of John 13. And this is the Word of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So we have Jesus. We have his disciples gathered around the table for Passover supper in the upper room. They have not yet begun the meal. They are about to begin the meal, but not yet. Jesus stands before them. He removes His outer garments. The word garments is plural, meaning that Jesus removed both His robe and His tunic. And so He appears before His disciples as an oriental slave would. In His, uh, his underwear, in His loincloth, He is there as a slave before them. He takes a long linen towel... He wraps it around his waist. He takes a pitcher of water and he pours the water into a wash basin. Uh, the ESV and other translations simply use the word basin, but it, in the Greek it's important to see that, that it actually is a wash basin. And that's important because literally what John records for us here is that Jesus takes water from a wash basin to wash his disciples' feet. And the reason that's important is John is emphasizing that word wash. He is emphasizing the symbol of what's happening here. There is a cleansing that is being symbolized here, a washing. Indeed, what Jesus is doing here symbolizes a deeper kind of washing. The washing of their feet is meant to help the disciples understand something about what the next few hours are going to be about. 
Because in just a few hours, Jesus is going to serve his disciples in a way that is far greater than what he is doing in this moment. He is about to go to the cross. He is about to endure what is necessary so that they can be truly clean before God. But for now, we have the Lord Jesus, and He stoops down, He takes the dirty feet of these men, and He dips them in the basin, He washes them, He scrubs them, He wipes them with a towel. This was a very low, menial thing to do. It was the task of a servant. When Abraham had visitors come to him in the book of Genesis, he didn't yet know that one of those visitors was the Lord himself. Abraham brought water to his visitors for them to wash their feet. But it never occurred to Abraham that he should wash their feet. Uh, No, that was something they were to do for themselves, to To wash another person's feet was to put yourself in a lower state. It was to undignify yourself. When John the Baptist talked about the Messiah that was about to come, he tried to communicate to the people how much greater the Messiah would be than him. And he said, He who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, when John the Baptist is looking for a picture of lowliness in his society, the place John goes is that of stooping to take the shoes off of another person's feet. It is still considered a very menial and lowly thing in many cultures. I heard a man from India this week talk about how in India uh, they would never take a Bible and put it on the floor near someone's feet. That would be considered um, uh, offensive to the Bible because in India feet are considered bad, gross, muddy, dirty. You stay away from feet. And it wasn't that unlike first century culture where most people wore sandals and feet tended to be very dirty. Uh, When David's servants in the Old Testament came to Abigail, her husband had died and she was told that David wanted to marry her. David intended to marry Abigail. Abigail replied in this way. She said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. In other words, Abigail is saying, I am a servant of the servants of David. This is how low I am. I am so thankful that David would consider me that I am willing to be the foot washer of the foot washers. I am willing to be the servant of the servants. So get a sense of what is happening in this upper room when the Son of God, the Son of God, worthy of infinite love and infinite praise, the most dignified person in the universe stoops and washes the feet of these disciples. Here is the man who speaks and the storms cease. Here is the man who speaks and the dead get up and live. Peter, James, and John 
just a little bit before this, saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. They, they caught a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. He spoke with Moses. He spoke with Elijah. This is Jesus, the, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. This is holy, holy, holy God over all. And he now in the upper room in this Middle Eastern city gets on his knees and scrubs the mud off of the feet of these fishermen. This former tax collector. These common men. Even Judas. Jesus is fully aware of what Judas is plotting. The following verses make that very clear. Judas is very aware of what he is about to do. And yet Jesus stoops before Judas and washes his feet. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus washed the feet of Judas, the son of perdition. You can't help but wonder if Jesus looked up into Judas's eyes as he performed that act. What would Judas have seen in the eyes of Christ when their eyes met? Well, this morning, we're only going to begin to look at this, this act of washing the disciples' feet. And this morning I want us to focus on the first verse of the chapter because the first verse is a very important verse. Look at verse 1 again. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. Church, John does not go immediately to verses 4 and 5. Jesus does not begin John 13 with, with Jesus washing the feet of His disciples. John takes time to give us some very important information about the context of this act. In fact, it seems like John wants us to feel the moment. It's as if he wants us to sense the aura of that upper room as Jesus knelt before these men. He wants us to understand the weight of the moment. He, he wants us to get what moved our Savior to do this thing. In fact, in the first three verses of John 13, we have no fewer than nine statements from John about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' washing of His disciples' feet. I mean, John goes way out of his way to set the stage. Why? Because this was a life-changing moment for John. This was a life-changing moment for these disciples. He, he wants us to sense the moment. He's inviting us into the moment. And these are not small things that John tells us in these first three verses. These are not little side details of, of minor importance. John tells us weighty things here. And so we're going to look at just the first five, which all occur in verse 1. Five statements in verse 1 about the circumstances surrounding Christ's washing of His disciples' feet. 
Number one. Number one. First, we are told that this action took place before the feast of the Passover. Before the feast of the Passover. This is significant that Jesus does this before the feast of the Passover. So many centuries before, you have Israel enslaved to the Egyptians. And God used a series of plagues to show His mighty power to the Egyptians in order to have His people set free from slavery. The tenth and the final plague was the worst of all. It was the death of the firstborn son of all of the families in Egypt. God sent an angel of death to slay the firstborn sons. But before this terrible plague occurred, God spoke to Israel and He told them to get ready because the Egyptians would soon be begging them to get out of town. He says, it's just going to be a few hours now. You need to prepare to leave. And as you pack your bags and as you prepare to leave, you're to cook a meal, a quick meal. I want you to cook and eat a sacrificial lamb. And you were to take the blood of the lamb and you were to put it on the doorposts of your homes. And when the angel of death comes by and sees the blood on your house, it will know to, that angel will know to move past that house and to keep on going. And so the firstborn sons of Israel were spared. And within hours, the Egyptians were giving Israel all of their gold, all of their treasures. They were saying, just leave us, leave us. You're a curse to us. Get out of our nation. And the people of Israel were set free to go to the promised land. Well, ever since that incredible day and that incredible act of God, the people of Israel commemorated that day through this annual seven-day feast. And it was this Thursday night meal in particular that was very special. We saw something of it when we did our Seder supper back around Easter time. And we ourselves looked at the different elements of the Passover meal. Every one of the elements of the meal meant something. It it looked back at what God had done or it looked forward to a future Messiah that was going to save God's people. So in the first century, Jesus is with his disciples. Israel, in one sense, is still in slavery. Rome is now in power. And things are not as bad as they were when they were enslaved to Egypt. But there are Roman soldiers walking the streets of Jerusalem. There is a Roman governor who is ruling the people. Taxes have to be paid to Rome. Many people on this night when Jesus is celebrating this Passover with His disciples, if you'd gone into homes all over Jerusalem that night, undoubtedly you would have heard fathers telling their children the story of how Israel was set free from Egypt and then telling their children, God is going to send a Messiah to set us free from the Romans. Because that was the expectation. That the Messiah would come and set Israel free from their bondage to Rome. But Rome was not the real issue. What these people needed to be saved from, just like you and me, is our slavery to sin. 
and our guilt before God. We keep sinning. We have sinful hearts. We are dirty with a filth that runs far deeper than the mud on these disciples' feet. And on this night, the Messiah Himself will eat the Passover meal with His twelve disciples. They will eat the sacrificial lamb. They will remember the sacrifice of the lambs those years before and how the blood was applied to the house so that the firstborns would be spared. Remember how the book of John begins, right? You have John the Baptist and he sees Jesus coming in the distance and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The second thing we see in this passage is that John tells us that Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world. You see that in verse 1? Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world. It's interesting, when you read the Gospel of John, there are all of these references to this coming hour, this, this coming hour. We regularly, in the Gospel of John, Hear Jesus say things like this, My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And then all of a sudden, right before our passage, in John 12, verse 23, we have a change. And Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So leading up to this moment, leading up to this moment, my time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. John 12, 23, the hour has come. John 13, 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come. And so when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, He knows very well what's about to happen in the next few hours. In His humanity, by the help of the Holy Spirit, He has learned from the Old Testament what's about to happen. He knows I am about to be betrayed. He knows that His disciples are getting ready to desert Him. He knows that He is getting ready to be beaten and bloodied and hung on a tree. He's going to be pierced. He knows that all we like sheep have gone astray. And that God is about to put on Him at the cross the sin of every one of God's people. He knows that a hellish experience is about to be His. He's getting ready to lay His life down for sinners and He's willing to do it. In this humanity, He... He doesn't want to. He's going to pray to the Father in just a few hours. Father, is there any other way? Take this cup away from me. There's any other way. I don't want to experience this, but nevertheless, not as I will, as you will. And He's going to obey His Father to the point of death. And by this hour tomorrow, He will be dead. So Jesus knows what's about to happen. The third point that John makes is this. Jesus knew that He was going to the Father. Jesus knew that He was going to the Father. So so, so Jesus not only sees the next few hours of extraordinary 
agony and anguish. And remember, we're not just talking about physical agony and anguish. We're talking about the agony of Christ's soul as the wrath of God was poured out upon Him because of the sin of man. So Jesus sees that coming, but He sees beyond that because He knows that once He has died, He is going to the Father. That when He breathes His last, and the last moment of suffering has been experienced, He's going to be in the presence of His Father. Church, Jesus did not go to hell when He died. He didn't. Jesus experienced hell as He died, but He did not go to hell when He died. The wrath of God was poured out upon Him fully on the cross so that when Jesus said, it is finished, He meant it is finished. No more suffering of God's wrath needed to be experienced. The requirements of justice had been met. And therefore, the moment Jesus breathed His last, His soul went to the Father. Jesus said to the thief, Thieves, a bad translation. They weren't really thieves. They were, they were insurrectionists, the rebels. But, but Jesus said to the insurrectionists, He said, Today you will be with Me in paradise. Not 40 days from Sunday, I will join you in paradise. He said, Today you will be with Me in paradise. When you think about the nature of Jesus, it gets strange to think about these things. As God... Jesus never left the Father. In His divinity, Jesus is an omnipresent Spirit. In His divinity, Jesus fills heaven and earth, including the heavenly realm where, where the Father is. There is a sense in which Jesus is everywhere at all times. But as man, Jesus truly was apart from the Father. That is, as a man, Jesus' experience was just like yours and mine. Jesus knows what it's like to have the hope of heaven set before you, but to know that you must pass through death to get there. That's where we are, isn't it? Isn't it? We have the hope of heaven, but there's this really scary thing called death that stands in our way. Jesus set the example for us. For the joy that was set before Him, the joy of being with His Father, the joy of exaltation, what did He do? Hebrews 12.1, He endured the cross. He despised the shame. Why? So that He would be glorified. He would enter into eternal joy. The cross had to come first. It was through the cross to glory. And this is the calling that Jesus places on us. He says, Christian, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to go through a life of cross-bearing. And you're going to have to go through death. You're going to have to experience these difficult moments. But there's glory ahead. You're going to experience that last moment of suffering. You will breathe your last. You will open your eyes. And you will be with me in paradise. Number four, the fourth point that John makes in verse one is that Jesus had loved his own who were in the world. You see that there? Jesus had loved his own who were in the world. In other words, leading up to this moment, Jesus has been loving all of those given to him by the Father. 
in John 10, Jesus describes himself as a good shepherd. And he says the good shepherd knows his sheep. And the sheep know him. He says the good shepherd calls his sheep by name. They are familiar to him. He is familiar with them. And they they come to him when he speaks. Eleven of the twelve disciples in this room are his true sheep. They are his own. And there are others. There is his dear friend Lazarus that we read about. There is Mary and the the other Mary and Martha. There are many others who heard the preaching of Jesus and they were wondrously converted. They became His disciples, His sheep, His his own. There is the woman that He met at the well. Throughout His life and ministry, Jesus was expressing and exhibiting a special love towards His own. Yes, there is a sense in which Jesus loves everybody. That is wondrously true. Jesus loves everybody. But there is also an extraordinary sense in which Jesus loves His own. And He loves them by teaching them and caring for them and ministering to them. And these disciples have been with Jesus for three years living in this love. In one sense, what Jesus is about to do and stooping before them and showing love by washing their feet, it's not out of character for the man that has been loving them these three years. He has been exhibiting His special love to them all this time. And now He's just putting the exclamation point before the true exclamation point, which is the cross. And then look at the fifth point in verse 1, because it's wonderful. Jesus loved His own to the end. Jesus loved His own to the end. That word end has a double meaning, and I think it's on purpose that it's used that way. The first and most literal meaning is that Jesus loved His own to the very end of His life. That is, to the last second of His life, Jesus was loving His disciples. He has loved them to this point in the upper room. He's not going to stop now. And His love for them is going to remain steadfast in these difficult hours. Jesus sits around the table and He breaks bread And he says, this is my body. And he pours the cup. And he says, this is my blood. And they sing hymns together around that table. And Jesus is just continuing to love these men. And then he's going to say to some of them in the garden in just a few hours, watch with me and pray. And he's going to go and pray. And he's going to return. And they're going to be fast asleep. And He's going to keep on loving them. And He's going to wake them up and He's going to say, look, I'm not the only one experiencing trouble this night. My disciples, there are going to be strong temptations upon you this night. You need to be watching. You need to be praying. You need to be alert. And then He's going to go and He's going to pray again. And He's going to come back and they're still asleep. And He's going to keep on loving them. He doesn't say, oh, Father... I was in this thing until these disciples kept showing what buffoons they are. I'm not going to die for them. No, the love of Jesus was not fickle. It was faithful when His disciples were unfaithful. 
The disciples flee. Every one of them flees except for John. Peter denies Christ three times. Jesus knows that. He told Peter he was going to do it. His best friends on planet earth are forsaking him and he keeps on loving them. He will love them to the point of dying for them. He loves them to the end. Church, understand the nature of Christ's love for you. It is rock solid. Once Jesus has set... don't know what's happening there. There we go. All right. Good. Get your attention. Now you're looking. Listen, listen. When Jesus sets His special love on you, you can't get out of it. You can't provoke Him so much that He's going to stop loving you. Once Jesus has made you His own, He is going to keep you His own forever. His love for you will never change. It is an ocean of love that you can never swim out of. It is on you forever. He is going to finish what He begun in you. His love will never be taken away. Nothing can separate you, dear Christian, from the love of God in Jesus Christ your Lord. It is yours forever. He will love you to the end. And that is the meaning, the other meaning of this Greek word telos, end. It could also be translated as the word uttermost. Having loved them to this point, Jesus is now going to love his own to the uttermost. In other words, though Christ has been loving his own in very powerful ways to this point, It is in the next hours that Jesus will show the love for His own in the highest way of all. The love of Jesus throughout His ministry has been on display, but the symphony is about to come to the height of the crescendo. There's about to be the peak. There's about to be the apex of the love of Christ on display. John is telling us here in verse 1 that everything that is about to happen, beginning in John 13, all the way through the end of the book, everything that's about to happen is about Jesus loving His own to the uttermost. And Jesus symbolizes it and puts it on display right here in the upper room. How? By making Himself as a servant and washing the feet of these sinful men. Let me close this way. If all of the verses after verse 1 are about Jesus displaying His boundless love, how do we see the love of Jesus expressed when He washes His disciples' feet? And very quickly, let me just mention, I think it's three ways that Jesus' love is displayed as he washes his disciples' feet. Number one, Jesus loves his disciples through instruction. Through instruction. Because what Jesus is doing here is teaching his disciples. Jesus is giving them a lesson. They at times were debating who is the greatest disciple of them all. James and John wanted to know, can I sit on the right hand of you? Can I sit on your left hand when you get to heaven? Jesus is setting an example for his disciples. He is instructing their minds. He is saying to them, the way to be great is to humble yourself and serve. 
Folks, that's how Jesus loved his disciples. That's how he loves us too, isn't it? He instructs us. He teaches us. Isn't that why we call ourselves disciples? He teaches us. He comes to us in our ignorance, in our worldliness, and He makes us... He makes us His own by the Holy Spirit. Once we become His disciples, Jesus, by His Spirit, through His Word, loves us by showing us the right way to live, the right way to think, the right attitudes to have... He is like a faithful shepherd. The faithful shepherd doesn't simply say the way so many think God is today. doesn't simply say, sheep, you're right just the way you are. You go wherever you want, sheep. Follow your own heart, sheep. Go that way, sheep, if that's where you want to go. And call that love. That's not love. That's how sheep get eaten. Love is, no, 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 sheep. Let me show you the right way to go. And with the rod and with the staff... Sometimes it hurts. He instructs us. He cares for us. He shows us the way to go. Oh, in Mount Hermon, if that is how Jesus loves us, how do we love others? We show them. We guide them. We teach them. We instruct them. It looks different in our different relationships. I mean, parents are going to be instructing their children. Pastors are going to be instructing a congregation. But even amongst one another, Speaking the word of God in love to one another. Encouraging and admonishing one another with the truths of God. This is how we love each other. By pointing one another to the word. Jesus loved his own by instructing them. Let us love one another. By pointing one another to the light of God's word. Number two. Jesus expressed his love to his disciples through his example. Through his example, I mean, that's, that's very clear. How did Jesus love his own in this passage? By setting an example for them. He didn't say, here's how I want you to act, and then do something differently himself. He gave them a pattern to follow. He humbled himself. He brought himself low first. He served them first. And then he said, I've done this, now you do this. This is how Jesus has been for us too, church. He has set for us a pattern of life. There's a reason we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in our Bibles. There's a reason we have these Gospels. It is to show us the life of Jesus as an example for us. Yes, there are things about the life of Jesus in the Gospels that you and I are not to imitate. We are not the Son of God. But Jesus, as a true human being, was led by the Holy Spirit, was faithful to His Father, and He set a pattern for us of obedience, a pattern of faithfulness, a pattern of a life of prayer, a pattern of of learning how to speak in in right ways to Pharisees, in a way of speaking right ways to, to women who are about to be stoned. Maybe, right? So, so there's all of these things that Jesus set an example for us in, and we're to read the Gospels. We're to learn from them. And then, folks, if that's how Jesus loves us, is by setting an example, especially the example of going to the cross for us, don't we want to love others by setting an example for them? Are we setting an example for one another? Senior adults in this room, we're looking to you. We need your example. 
We want to learn from you. What does it mean to be godly? Love us by setting that example. Let us love one another by setting that example for each of us. Those of you who are young, set an example for those who are older. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy? Don't let others despise you because you are young. Set the example for them. This is love. Demonstrate for one another what godliness looks like. Number three. Finally, Jesus expressed his love to his disciples through humble, sacrificial service. How did Jesus love his own? By humbling himself to serve them. By sacrificing of himself to serve them. He sacrifices his societal dignity. He stoops to the class of a servant, of a slave, and he does it to serve the ones he loves. This is how Jesus has loved us. He came from heaven and made himself man. Talk about stooping, right? This is more than stooping from middle class man to slave. This is stooping from holy, holy, holy God who is completely other to humanity. God took on human flesh. God took on sickness and suffering and sorrow and weakness. His body was broken for us. His blood was spilt for us. Why? To love us, to serve us, to sacrifice on our behalf. Church, this is what it means to love. Are we loving? Are we sacrificing for one another? Are we serving those in our lives? Are we doing so in humility? Do we find joy in imitating our Savior by putting ourselves low to care for others in this body, to care for others in our family, to care for others in our workplace and in our neighborhoods? Are we loving as Christ has loved us? Mount Hermon, see the great love of Jesus who has humbled himself not just to wash the feet of some disciples, but to wash us of all our guilt before God. And ultimately, to wash us completely free of the power and the presence of sin. We're going to stand before him on the last day, spotless. Don't you want to be spotless? There's going to be a day when by the blood and the power of Jesus, you're going to be spotless spotless through and through no more battle with sin every desire that pops up in your heart will be a pure and holy and god-honoring desire and jesus will have done that and it cost him dearly he suffered hell on the cross for us who believe do you believe And if so, are you grateful? And are you imitating that love? Let's pray.